The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good morning, guys. How are you this morning? Excellent. Excellent. I'm doing good. Thanks. Hey, uh, go ahead and grab your Bibles and open up to Luke chapter 14. That's where we're going to find our text this morning. If you are here this morning and you don't have a Bible and you need one, would you stick your hand high up in the air and we'll make sure we get a Bible to you. If you, if you don't own one, that's our gift to you. If you just need to borrow it, that's fine too. So uh, put your hand up if you need it. We're going to begin reading in chapter 14 of the Gospel of Luke, starting at verse 25. Now, great crowds accompanied him. The him there is Jesus. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, and even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish it. Or, or, or what king? going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So, therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. <laughs> salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray. Father, we have ears. We hear this morning the words of our Savior, your Son, Jesus. Those words come to us, God, 
through the tunnels of time, they have been preserved and protected by you. There have been those followers of you throughout history whose blood has been spilled, God, to bring us these words. And as we hear the voice of your son, as we hear the voice of Jesus talking to us, God, give us hearts that are ready to receive. Lord, give us a, a will that desires to be bent around your truth rather than trying to bend your truth around us. Let your word be like honey on our lips as we receive it. And may it do its deep work inside of us as we process it. May it cause us to wrestle with life here and to long for eternity. May it cause us to fight for what you've called us to as disciples, as followers of you. So arrest our attention. Arrest our hearts this morning with your truth. And we ask this in the name of and for the glory of Jesus. Amen. We left off last week with Pastor Jeff walking us through a story that Jesus gave, a parable. Pastor Jeff was giving us instructions from the parable that Jesus told about a ruler who invited outcasts to sit at his table. And by this, by this parable, we learn that the gospel is an invitation. It's an invitation to come and dine. It's an invitation to be close. It's an invitation to enjoy the king. It's an invitation to enjoy all that he has provided through his benevolent heart. It's an invitation to benefit from all the resources that the king has. These are resources that we could not come up with on our own. It's a table that we don't deserve to sit at. It's a pleasure that we have not earned. It has been provided for us. It has been purchased for us with the blood of God's Son. It has been given freely to us. It is the fulfillment of what God has promised through, the Isaiah, through Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 55, 1. When the invitation from the Lord is, oh, everyone who's thirsty, come and drink. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Come fill yourselves. The gospel is an invitation to dine, but, but that's not all. It's an invitation to dine, but that is not all that it is. <laughs> if Jesus had only stopped here, at the section before this, <laughs> wouldn't that be awesome? I mean, this would fit right in with the culture in which we live, right? 
This is what we want. We, we love the idea of being invited to the table with the king. We love the reality that we are those who are pulled from the highways and byways to sit at his table. How attractive the gospel would be. What a, what a marketing strategy to say, hey, being saved is like a party with a king. But it isn't where Jesus stopped, is it? You see, in the section that we read here, right after the, the section that teaches us that the gospel is like an invitation, we also learn that the gospel is not just an invitation to dine, but a command to follow. The, the gospel is not just an invitation to dine, but it is a command to follow Jesus, to become a disciple. You see, salvation isn't enough for God. We would love to stop there, wouldn't we? Just give me my get out of hell free card and let's call it good. No further obligations, no payments of 1995. We, we, we could just stop it right there, but, but God says, no, no, that's not, that's not my plan for you. The gospel is not just an invitation to dine. It is a command to follow. And listen, this command to follow is broken down into several sections that we're going to look at through our time together. The command to follow is, first of all, verse 26, a command to prioritize. A command to prioritize. Second of all, a command to commit, also verse 26. Verse 27, a command to subvert, to be subversive. Number four, a command to assess, verses 28 through 32. Number five, it is a command to renounce, verse 33. And number six, it is a command to permeate. Verses 34 through 35. Now what we're going to do, I'm, I'm changing it up from last service so the guys in the slide, and the slides might want to shoot me. Anthony's back there doing the best to roll with me. Um, but I'm going to walk you through the text here, and then we're going to go back and we're going to do the assess part. We're going to take a look at that when we're all done just keeping the flow of the text here. I want you guys to be anchored and rooted in the word of God, not just in the, the things that sponsor or, or spark conversation outside of that. So we're going to walk through these. First of all, it is a command to prioritize. Verse 26, he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers, and sisters. Now think about this. I, matter of fact, I, I went to the Greek in this. I was kind of like walking through the, the, the Greek text, and, I'm, and, and it's so repetitive, right? It's so repetitive. It's almost absurd how repetitive. You kind of hear it, right? He could have said, if you don't hate your own family, he could have just like, okay, all, let's wrap all that up together and move. No, he's like, if you're going to come after me, you need to hate 
your own father and your mother and your wife. Surely not kids, God, not, and your kids. What, 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 what else do I have? Your brother, your sister, oh yeah, even your own life. Throw that in there too. You see how repetitive that is? Think about the words of Jesus in this moment. Think about what the crowds are thinking as they're, they're following him. And he's like, hey, do you want to follow me? This is what it looks like. Your love for me and for my kingdom in comparison to the love that you have for your father or your mother or your wife or your children or your brother or your sister or even your own life. In comparison... That love that you have for those should be hatred in comparison to the love that you have for me. I'm not saying don't love them, right? But in comparison to the two, I come first. What a commanding call this is. Think about this. What do you treasure more than Jesus. He says, look, if you're going to be my disciple, it's a command, it is a command to prioritize. I come first. Now, on the one hand, we look at that and we say, man, that sounds so harsh. Like, what, what, what is he saying? I, I would submit to you that being able to love your father, your mother, your wife, your husband, your children, your brother, your sister, your neighbor, or even your own self is impossible to love the way that you are meant to love until you love Jesus first. You see, right ordered relationships, a right relationship with Jesus, a deep love for him automatically produces a love that is centered, not based upon self-need, not based upon self-gratification or what you can get or pull or extract from another person to meet your own need. No, it is a benevolent and gracious love that is produced as a fruit of God's Spirit flowing through you. Until you love Jesus, you cannot love your father, your mother, your wife, your kids, your neighbor, yourself, the way that you should. So Jesus gives this command, and it's, it's a doozy. He says, essentially, relationship with me comes first. And then he gives a command to commit. The command to follow is a command to prioritize. It is a command to commit. Notice at the very end of verse 26, he says this, Yea, and, or yes, and even his own life. Even his own life. The first is family. That's a hard one for us to get our minds around. But then he says, 
No, even, even your own life. He adds to that, like, commit all of who you are to me. I get all of you or I get none of you. All of you is what I want. Following me, you can't do that in part. You can't be a mugwomp. You guys ever heard that term? A mugwomp? It's somebody who's got their mug on one side of the fence and their womp on the other. You can't be that. He says, I get all of you. I can remember there was a season in my own life where I felt like God was asking me to lay down ministry and to not be a pastor anymore and to, uh, to go, to move to Bend and be a landscaper in Bend. And uh, at the time, I was praying about it and, you know, uh, believing very much that that was something that God was pressing on me to do. But, but in the middle of that, as I was praying uh, and reading, a, a question was presented to me that that God used by the Holy Spirit to really pierce deep into the motivations of my heart by an author that I respect very much. And he simply asked this question, is it okay with you if God wastes your life in your own eyes? Here's what he means by that. Like, what if obeying Jesus never gives you a position, never gives you prominence, never gets you accolades. There is no earthly reward. And so the Lord was asking me at that time in my own heart, like, Jeremy, what if it pleases me that you be just like a landscaper who loves me, faithfully loves his wife, maybe is a part of some Bible study somewhere, faithfully attends a church, and you live that whole way your entire life, and you're not a pastor, and you don't have a position, and you don't have a platform, and people aren't coming up to you going, man, that was good, good job, giving you accolades. What if all that goes away? But that's what pleases me, Jeremy. In a moment of honesty, I had to come back to the Lord. And I'm like, no. That, that actually doesn't make me very happy at all. I, I, really, I, I, I know what the right answer is supposed to be. I'm a good enough Christian that I can figure that out. But in my heart, that's not what I want. <laughs> in my heart, I want, I want like, I want people to notice and I want to make an impact and I want, I want to do big things for the kingdom and I want the legacy of my life to go on and on. I want to be a, a Hudson Taylor or a Billy Graham or, a, or, or David Livingston. I, I want to be one of those people that like is used mightily by you in such a way that generations of people are impacted by the life that I have offered to you. And again, the question comes back, but Jeremy, what if that's not what I want? You see, here's the deal. God does not reward 
on the basis of fruitfulness or results. This is so important for us to understand. Matter of fact, you remember what Paul was encouraging the Corinthians. He said, listen, one guy plants, another guy waters, but who is it that causes the increase? It's the Lord. So he says to them in chapter 4, 1 Corinthians, the very first couple of verses there, he says, hey, listen, one thing, one thing is required in a steward, somebody who's been entrusted with the things that God has given them. One thing is required of a steward, and that is that he be found successful? No. No faithful did you do what I asked you to do I was talking with Ethan last Sunday we were we're sitting down talking about this very thing walking through some scriptures together and I said man this is how glorious this is think about this over here you've got Billy Graham and there's like millions of people whose lives have been affected by the work that he's done. I, I mean, when it comes to the gospel, I think you, you, you'd be challenged to find anybody in history that has made an impact for the gospel that's compar- comparable to Billy Graham. I, I, that'd be a tough call, right? Yet, when Billy Graham is standing before Jesus, as he is now, He is not going to say, Jesus is not going to say to Billy Graham, hey, Billy, um, how many people got saved under your ministry? Billy, how big was uh, the Billy Graham Association? Billy, how many countries did you visit? Billy, how, how successful was your ministry in the eyes of the world? And he's gonna say to Billy Graham, what did you do with what I gave you to do, were you faithful to obey me? And if Billy Graham was faithful to trust in Jesus and faithful with the things that Jesus gave him to do, not only is he saved in eternity because of his faith in Jesus, but he's rewarded. Not on the basis of the results, because some people don't get results, right? Like Jeremiah the prophet who faithfully follows Jesus, but there is no reward for that. His whole life he suffers as a consequence of following God. There's no personal reward outwardly, but in eternity he faithfully did what God called him to do. God rewards on the basis of faithfulness. Now, now here, watch this. Over here, on the other side, you've got the stay-at-home mom. You know what she does all day? She wipes butts. She cleans dishes. She takes a magic eraser and wipes boogers off the wall. She makes meals. And pines away because the world is telling her that, that, that she's wasting her life. 
But that stay-at-home mom is going to one day stand before Jesus and he's not going to say to her, hey, how big was your ministry? How many people got saved as a result? He's going to say, were you faithful to what I called you to? And listen to this. The same reward that is available to Billy Graham is available to the stay-at-home mom. The same exact reward. Because it's not on the basis of results. It's on the basis of faithfulness. See, here is the beauty of God's wisdom. You might be a landscaper in Bend, Oregon. You might be a pastor. You might have a stage and a pulpit. You might have tremendous success, or you might live among a tribe of 20, spending your entire life trying to learn their language and never seeing one conversion. That might be your life. But the reward comes for faithfulness, not for results. So Jesus says, hate even your own life. Take it and give it to me. Offer it to me. I mean, back in the day, before I got nicer equipment, you know how like every Father's Day you upgrade whatever your hobby is? Like you try and get like that one thing. If you're, if you're smart as a man, I'm going to give you a little secret here. You ask for one good item every year. And over the course of 15, 20 years, you constantly are just improving your gear. If it's good stuff, it lasts, right? Back in the day, when I first started backpacking, I, I couldn't, actually, they didn't even have LED lanterns or anything like that. So um, we, we used to take these candle lanterns, and they're just like little, a metal capsule that would pull apart, and there were glass windows around the top part, and when they would pull apart, there was a candle inside, and the candle had a little spring underneath of it. And when you would light the candle, you could hang it up inside your tent, and the type of wax would just sort of evaporate. It would dissipate. It wouldn't drip all over your tent. And, um, and then the spring, as the candle burned, it would push the candle upward, up against a sort of metal top where the wick would come through, and it worked just like a lantern. It was kind of cool because you could be way out in the middle of the woods and light up your tent. Your tent would be glowing in the darkness underneath the stars. Super cool. But, but here's the deal. At the beginning of two hours, each candle lasted about two hours. At the beginning of two hours, you had a candle about like this. At the end, you had a candle like this. The candle could only stay lit. It could only provide light. It could only be on fire at the expense of the candle. It had to burn up to burn bright. It had to offer itself to stay on fire. Guys, Jesus is commanding his disciples, and he says it's a command to prioritize, but it is also a command to commit yourself. All that I am belongs to you. I offer it all. Have all of me. Have my time. Have my resources. Have my family. God, have my house. Have all of me. Everything belongs to you. It's all yours. It's a command to commit. Verse 27, it's a command to subvert 
Whoever does not bear his own cross. Now, <laughs> think about this for a moment. We have crosses everywhere, right? Like we got little cross jewelry, cross bumper stickers, little cross rings. Uh, we got cross tattoos. We got Celtic crosses and, and cross journals and cross notebooks and whatever, right? Crosses are everywhere. But in some ways, that pads us from really seeing the extremeness of what a cross actually was. And it was an ancient torture device where people were executed. That buffer sometimes keeps us from seeing what he's saying because we, we, we sanitize it in our own lives. Listen, well, l- let me put it to you this way. William Barclay, uh, the old uh, commentator, said this. Everyone knew this. When the Roman general Verus had broken the revolt of Judas in Galilee, which was 4 BC, he crucified 2,000 Jews and placed the crosses by the wayside along the roads to Galilee. So, in 4 BC, trying to squelch this rebellion against the Roman government, they crucified 2,000 people, hung their lifeless bodies, or struggling, suffering bodies, next to the road on the way to Galilee, and you had to walk between 2,000 hanging, dead, maimed, tortured people. Why? You had to do that because you were in rebellion against the way things were. You were in rebellion against the earthly authority of Rome. You were fighting against the rest of the direction that the world was going. And when Jesus says to this crowd... If you're going to follow me, you're going to have to take up your cross and follow me. It's an invitation to subvert the kingdoms of this world and supplant it with the eternal kingdom of God. Carrying a cross always led to death on the cross. No one carried a cross for fun. It was never a fashion statement. The first hearers of Jesus didn't need an explanation of the cross. They knew it was an unrelenting instrument of torture, death, and humiliation. If someone took up his cross, he never came back. It was a one-way ticket. It was a one-way journey. And so when Jesus says, hate your mom, hate your dad, hate your wife, hate your kids, hate your brother, hate your sister, hate your own life, and take up your cross and come with me. What are they hearing? (laughs) You see, this is the way it is even today. In those days, to take up a cross meant that you were in rebellion against Rome and you were going to be punished as a consequence of that. In the present day, though, the culture is all headed one direction and we have been called to walk a different direction. And that puts us on the outs a lot, doesn't it? You feel the weight of it? What do you think? those moments where you say, no, actually, I, I, 
I believe there is really only one way to be saved and to go to heaven, and that's through Jesus and what he provided on the cross. Whoa, 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 that's so narrow. What's wrong with you? No, I, I really believe that we were created in the image of God and that God has a created design for our lives. And part of that design is to bring him glory in everything. Whoa. Like, like you're owned in some way? Yeah. Like he owns the blueprints on my DNA. He knit me together in my mother's womb. All of who I am is owed to him. I suck oxygen right now by the gracious provision of God. Those are not popular ideas, are they? They run counter to the world. To follow Jesus, even in the present day, costs us something, doesn't it? Might make us unpopular. Might even get us killed in some parts of the world. But Jesus says, I'm worth it. Follow me anyway. Not only that, but verses 28 through 32, it is a command to assess. A command to assess. In verse 28, that's broken really into two sections. He says, For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the costs, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Here's the first part, building something. Second part. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether or not he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. He says it's, a, it's time to sit down and assess, to take a look, to count the cost to measure where am I in my growth? Where am I in my commitment to God? Because a life without cost is not the life of a disciple. A life life without conflict is not the life of a disciple. Can Can I speak a word of encouragement to those of you who have felt like you've been knocked around by life a little. Like every time you just barely break the surface of drowning to suck oxygen, somebody is there to slap you back down. Where you've been struggling and you keep thinking, once I get past this this little barrier here, finally I'll be able to hit the cruise control and it's not going to be so hard. There have been those that have linked suffering somehow with God's displeasure. But the story of Job reminds us of something very important. And that is this. Sometimes suffering is not because of your lack of faith or your sinfulness. Sometimes your suffering is because God has absolute confidence in you. Sometimes he goes, I know, I know, they're going to cling to me. 
They're just going to keep loving me. They're just going to keep following me. And when they, when they hit the ground, they're going to get back up and look at me and say, where, where, sh- where else can I go? You, you alone, God. You have the words of life. I'm, I'm following you. And instead of looking at your suffering as evidence that something is wrong in your life, maybe, just maybe, you might need to reassess and look and go, man, the conflict, the battles I have engaged in, the losses I've taken has been a part of God's equipping me for this very moment and for all that he will continue to do in my life. Well, he says it's like building it's like going to war. You better know what you're signing up for. You better know what you're getting into. You better know where you really stand. The command to assess. Next comes a command to renounce. Verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Here's essentially what he's saying. He's saying, look, Nothing else matters in comparison to following me. Renounce it all. There's nothing else that matters in comparison to following me. All of my eggs are in one basket. That's what he's saying. Remember how Jesus taught his disciples to pray? He said, pray like this. When you pray, pray, thy kingdom, thy will, Thy glory. Me is never mentioned. It's all, it's all for you. I give it all to you. All of it belongs to you. I renounce everything else that I think will bring me value because all of my value is found in you and you alone. It's a call to renounce. In verses 34 to 35, he draws this one final analogy. He says, salt is good, but if it's lost its taste, how shall the saltiness be restored? It's of no use either for the soil nor for the dung pile, the manure pile. It's thrown away. Who, he who has ears, let him hear. Listen. It is also a command to permeate have you ever oversalted your food? Have you ever had that awkward moment at the, at the burger joint where you grab the salt shaker and some kid has been messing with it before you got the salt shaker, right? And you just give it one shake and the metal lid pops off and the whole thing dumps all over your fries. There's no way to get it back, is there? You can take the fries and shake them, but it's done. It's over with. Because salt that has flavor has an effect, doesn't it? Here's, Here's what Jesus is saying. Like salt with flavor that cannot be taken back. The life of a disciple is flavored with a deep love and commitment to Jesus. You can't undo it. You can't separate the two. Salt without flavor is not salt. You might as well throw it out. It's not even good for throwing on the manure pile to keep the flies down. 
Salt without flavor is useless. It's just dust. And he's saying, listen, if you're going to be my disciple, there should be some sort of evidence of that in your life. You should be salty in the good sense. You should have a fragrance of Christ. So what I'm going to invite us to do then is to begin to assess. We have a spectrum of growth, right? That starts all the way over here with the spiritually unborn, the person who is not yet saved, and runs all the way over to the spiritual grandparent. And people are at various stages of growth all throughout. So let's take a look at these different stages. First of all, the spiritually unborn. See there, there's a, that's a human egg cell. All of the potential for life is there. It's just not fertilized. The seed of the man has not come in order that it may bring life. And as a result of that, though there is much potential for life, it is effectively dead. I would invite those of us here who have a heart to see people come to Jesus, to think of the people around us who have not come to Jesus in this sense. There's so much potential for life. All that they need, all that they need is to hear the gospel. They are broken, and some of them are aware of their brokenness. Some of them are unaware of their brokenness, but they they can sense, like, I don't do what I feel like I should be doing, and I I constantly am doing what I feel like I shouldn't be doing. They're, They're stuck in that loop. They're, they're lost, sort of meandering through life and, and not really aware of the fact that life actually has direction, that it's been designed. They're, they're not, they don't really see that. They're living mostly out of their feelings. They're, they're, they're people who are like governed by internal unction and some principles that they pick up that they feel an attachment to. But, but that's it. They're, they're spiritually disconnected from God and do not know him. So the spiritually unborn are, are, are these things. So what do they need? The spiritually unborn needs the gospel. It's that simple. Now, now, let me say this. Like when, at least for me, maybe it's because I grew up in like 1990s Christianity when you know, there was like this big push for all these patterns for sharing the gospel. I, I just want to tell you, like, my approach to that has changed. I am not a peddler. I am not a salesman. It, I'm not a debater. It is not my job to intellectually corner somebody with a set of facts to where finally they're like, okay, I acquiesce. You're smarter than me. There must be a God. That doesn't produce salvation. Produces annoyed people. Right? 
Here, here's, what, here's what Jesus said. He said that we are like sowers. And, and our only job is not to, not to sell something or peddle something or force something. Our only job is just talk about what happened what he did, we just, we cast the seed. Here's the seed. Here it is. And it just, we're going to spread it everywhere. We're like Johnny Appleseeds, right? Just dropping seed bombs of the gospel and truth everywhere that we go. And whatever comes up is what comes up. But our job is to cast the seed. You see, the spiritually unborn person needs someone to come to them and say, look, Man, I'm not trying to sell you anything. I don't, I don't even have really the intelligence to corner you in some sort of spiritual debate. That's like not even my goal. What I can tell you is, I, I was a person who did not know God like you. <laughs> I, to be honest, I didn't even really want to. But then somebody told me about what Jesus did. I had a sense of like my own, my own offense against God. And when they told me that the God who I had offended loved me enough that he sent his son to suffer the consequence for my sin and to pay for my sin, all of a sudden something began to open up in me, like hope. I I don't even know how to describe it, but like hope broke forth and, and I began to think about the way that God loved me and I, and I, and I realized as, as I began to believe in the kind of love that a God like that has my heart changed towards him all of a sudden I wanted to do as well I, like nobody was forcing me there was no special class on how to like you know how to be a person who wants God's will like I, I started wanting it I was changed when I believed, and I just want to tell you, that same change is available to all those who believe. So, do with it what you want. Here's the seed. So, we love the spiritually unborn. They need the gospel, and that's our job, isn't it? How will they hear if we don't go? We have to. Not only that, but then... The next stage beyond that is the spiritual infant, the spiritually newborn. This is a person who's, who's lacking knowledge, and they are the Lord of their own lives. And they've received the gospel. They know who Jesus is. They, they understand the mechanics of, of what he accomplished on the cross, perhaps. But they still believe they're in charge. And, and, and Jesus is really an accessory to their lives that adds value. And it's not necessarily like pure evil, right? That they, they believe, they're just, they don't understand everything. They're at a place of maturity where they don't understand that life isn't about them, that it's really about him. Right? They are confused about what truth is they're wrestling with the, sometimes the simple things that for those who are maybe mature they, you look back and go man that's such a simple thing but they're, they're really wrestling 
with like, what is true and what can I trust? Or, or they're just beginning to learn what truth is. They're like open-hearted about it and, and are willing to engage with truth, but they're, they're just at the front end of that process. And spiritual infants need. They need, first of all, the gospel. <laughs> they need to be reminded of what Jesus did for them. And they need baptism. Why? Why baptism? Because a person who has been born again needs to be acknowledged. They need to be brought in front of a group of people and, and, and they need to be presented in such a way like you were outside of the family of God. Now you are inside the family of God. You belong to us. You're a part of our kingdom. I'm responsible for you and you're responsible for me. We love each other. We're connected to one another. They need that. They need an introduction to the word. We're talking just basic stuff here. Not deep two-hour Bible studies trying to get nailed down the doctrine of justification. What they need is a basic cursory understanding of the word of God. They need to memorize the books of the Bible and learn how to use it as a tool. They need just simple things. They need an understanding of how to pray. Like some people who come and they sit in the sanctuary... they're never going to tell you, like, I'm not going to pray. But, but in small groups, in community, you know what happens? When, when you become a part of one another's lives, all of a sudden you start to go, actually, I feel awkward sometimes praying. I don't really, I, I'm, I'm clunky. I don't know if I'm doing it right. What an awesome opportunity to come beside somebody who's, who's growing and at that place of maturity and say to them, hey, you know, prayer is just really about conversation with Jesus. Just talk to him just like you would anybody else. He's a person, not an idea. Share your heart with him. Talk about what's going on in life and share your concerns and your hopes for the future and and just tell him about everything. They need that simple instruction so that they can continue to grow in their relationship with God and their understanding of him. After the spiritual infant, the one who is lacking knowledge comes the spiritual child. The spiritual child is self-focused, but they're growing. They're growing in their relationship with God. They're beginning to build relationships with other believers. They're developing habits of Bible study and prayer. They're plugging into relational environments like studies, prayer groups, small groups, etc. They're learning the value of giving of themselves. They're starting to take joy in, in giving their life away rather than expecting everything to come towards them. You see, the spiritual infant is the one who's like, man, you know, I, the pastor's sermon today, I just, you know, it wasn't like great. And it didn't really laugh. The, the music was kind of loud. Uh, the drums hurt my ear. Um, we've, there was a moment where I was standing over there and Mike was playing guitar and like the, the lights glinted off of his guitar and it blinded me. And I don't know. I, I'm not a big fan of donut holes. <laughs> I sure wish we had like some filled maple bars. Maybe with a couple strips of bacon on top. Okay? (laughs) I heard an amen over there. That's awesome. 
listen, the spiritual infant and the spiritual child are still wrestling with like, no, I, my desires, my feelings, they are kind of the center of the world. And, and the goal of church is to nurture those things. And guys, we, that's not to castigate people that are in that step, level of maturity. We, matter of fact, a, a child, when they're growing, needs lots of extra attention that they don't need when they get older, right? It is incredibly loving to love them at that stage of growth, and yet it is incredibly unloving to leave them in that stage of growth. We're continuing to call them forward, continuing to love them well. So the the spiritual child is the one who is self-focused but growing, learning the value of giving themselves, and they need Number one, the gospel. Are you seeing a pattern here? The unborn needs the gospel. The newborn needs the gospel. The child needs the gospel. Why? Because we need to continually remind ourselves this is about what he has done and not about us. They need a sense of identity within the family. They need to be able to see where they fit in the body of Christ. They need a deeper understanding of the importance of God's word, not just a cursory knowledge or like memorizing the books and getting familiar with the stories, but now all of a sudden they're beginning to transition in their maturity to see the word of God is living and it's active and it's being used by the spirit to pierce down into my heart and and, and, and help me navigate life. It's changing who I am as I rehearse the truth. I'm being transformed. I'm being shaped, made into the image of Jesus. I'm starting to look like him. He's changing me through the scriptures. They need training to shift from self-focus to outward focus. They need people to come alongside of them and remind them, hey, listen, it's awesome that you love maple bars, but just as a reminder, we've got a lot of people that come in here. And we, we want to love everybody. And uh, if you wanted to, you know, be a part of the maple bar committee who goes and, like, you know, you get maple bars every week, that's awesome. That would be a great way to serve others rather than just, you know, sort of sitting here and feeling like you're, you're having to do without or people are not serving you well. We're helping them to make that transition, Right? Next, after the spiritual child, comes the spiritual young adult. This is the person who's becoming kingdom-focused. Okay, the spiritual young adult, they're starting to learn, grasp their own sense of identity. They are becoming less self-centered. They're becoming more others-minded. They're beginning to see themselves as ministers, as servants. They're starting to find their place in the body of Christ and really going, okay, what can I do? Everybody seems to have a job around here. What can I do? What's my job? What's my part? I want to go do something. They've got that youthful zeal to like accomplish things for the kingdom. They're giving of themselves and their resources and they do it with thankfulness and joy and love, not out of obligation because as they've grown, they've found that giving their life away is better than hanging on to it, keeping it for themselves. It's, it's more blessed to give 
than it is to receive. They're like, I want to be the best giver ever. They're the spiritual young adult. Young adults are a joy for us as church leaders. We're just like, you're just so pumped to be here. You're just so excited. Like, you want to stack chairs and be a part of the greeting team, and you want to do those things. And we're like, this is awesome. Now, there's one little thing, though. Is that sometimes for us as church leaders, we can leave people at this stage of growth, say, oh, yeah. You want to stack chairs? Awesome, praise God. You want to work security? Awesome, praise the Lord. Stay right there. But no. We want them to stack chairs and begin taking greater steps towards maturity. We want them to continue growing in their relationship with Jesus. We want them to find their place in the body of Christ. We want them to continue to progress and grow until they become spiritual parents. Oh, sorry, hold on. Wait, stop. The spiritual young adult needs, first of all, the gospel. They need to contribute to the family, be a part of serving, find their place. They need to mature in their grasp of God's word. Again, beginning to wrestle with deeper things. They need to begin transitioning to a kingdom focus and sharing with others, and not just like taking in, taking in, but now they want to be those that are giving out. We want to help them make that transition. We want them to become spiritual adults or spiritual parents. So the spiritual parent is an intentional disciple maker. They are those who are mature but continually growing as disciples of Jesus. They're skilled at seeing where others are in their maturity and and, and then finding ways to help them. They understand their role in being active participants in the kingdom. They're not just passive. They're not people who are smos. You guys ever heard the term smo? That might be one of those uh, terms. I'm throwing these out. So you got mugwomp. That's one. That's a freebie for today. Uh, Smo, Sunday morning only. Right? This is the crowd that's like, no, I come, I tend, I don't really want to be a part of anything else, <laughs> right? So the spiritual adult is the person who goes, no, man, I'm, I'm in it. I'm in the kingdom. I'm a part of this. What can I do? Like, I'm, I'm a part of sharing with others and caring for others. That's, that's my role. They're intentional about relationships. They see every relationship in their lives as an opportunity to share something from the Lord or receive some gift from the Lord. They go, oh man, wouldn't it be awesome if I just sat down with Sam, we just had coffee, and we were just talking about Jesus. And like Sam would say a few things to me that would help spark or make me think about the scriptures differently. And and I would find my heart lit up with the reality of God's word and his kingdom. And then then maybe there'll be an opportunity for me to share something with Sam, too. How cool would that be? Oh, you know who I really have a heart for? There's this guy. He's been coming to my small group. He's been a part of my huddle, and, and I can just see, like, he's not really, he, he's sort of stunted in his growth. I, I got a heart for that guy. I want to sit down with him. I want to meet with him. I want to talk about ways that we can nurture his growth in the Lord. I want to see him moving up the ladder of maturity and growing in the Lord. 
See, because for spiritual parents, there is no greater joy than watching your children walk in truth. In Galatians 4.10, Paul describes what it's like to be a spiritual parent. He calls the Galatians his dear, the Galatian church his dear children. Describing his longing, his pains, his hope that, that they would persevere until Christ is formed in them. Listen, no one parents accidentally. If you do, you're not very good at it. Everyone parents with intentionality, right? Forethought, guidance, like what kind of a kid do I want to see come out the other end of this? Hopefully not somebody who's a train wreck. So I'm going to supply them with everything that I can to help them succeed in life. I want them to do better than me. My joy is made complete in seeing their success, that they are standing on the shoulders of my labor and that their kids can stand on the shoulders of that labor and that their kids, I want to see generations affected. See, the the spiritual parent loves the one-on-one training, loves discipleship, loves being it, but we don't want people to get stuck there either. What we want is for the whole body of Christ to continue growing and maturing to where they're not only spiritual parents, but they're also spiritual grandparents. Spiritual grandparents. Now, the spiritual parent needs the gospel. They need to embrace the responsibility of raising others. They need encouragement and training in training others. They are intentionally kingdom-focused, and they are adding disciples to the church. But we don't want them to stay there. We want them to move on to become spiritual grandparents. The spiritual grandparent is mature, but a continually growing disciple of Jesus. They're skilled at training others who can train others. Their focus isn't just on addition to the church, but their focus is on the multiplication. Like, I want to see other people leading like I'm leading. So I'm going to pour into leaders of leaders. They take serious the need not just to add to the church, but to multiply. They find their greatest joy in the success of those that they train. In other words, like, okay, I could do ministry myself. I could care for others myself. I could lead Bible studies myself. But you, you know what brings me more joy? What brings me more joy is to grab Jason and have him do it. What brings me more joy is to grab so-and-so over here and this person there and, and watch them do the work of ministry and I'm helping them and I'm seeing their success in the Lord and I am overwhelmed at what God is doing through the manifold blessings of the body of Christ. So what do the spiritual grandparents need? They need the gospel. They need to be reminded to keep it simple. It's just about Jesus. They need to begin moving towards parenting spiritual parents. They need a vision to see a legacy that will outlive them. They need uh, learning. They need to learn the lesson that success, the success of those under them is more enjoyable than self-focused success. And they have intentionally kingdom-focused relationships, and they are multipliers. Where are you in that spectrum? Where are you at your stage 
of growth. Hey, listen, if you're, if you're all the way back at the beginning, praise God for you. We want to connect you with other people. We want to see you grow. We want to see you part of a small group environment where you can like, connect with other people who will love you, tell you the gospel, remind you of the gospel, help you to learn the Bible. We want to see you grow. And if you're, you're over here on this end, man, we got work for you to do. There's so much that God wants to do in and through us here at Heritage as we all embrace our role within the body of Christ. Listen, Jesus was a disciple, wasn't he? Like he grew in wisdom and stature. He was trained through suffering, Hebrews tells us. But he was a disciple who grabbed disciples. He grabbed 12 guys. And then those disciples became not 12, but 120 in an upper room. And then that 120 became 3,000. And then that 3,000 became 5,000. And then that 5,000 went to the uttermost parts of the earth, and one disciple at a time, one disciple at a time, one person transferring all that God has invested in them to the next person, on and on and on it went until in November of 1997, the gospel was shared with an unborn person named Jeremy Neff. And I heard the good news of Jesus. And I came to believe in him because disciples were faithful to make disciples who made disciples who made disciples. This, friends, is the call of discipleship. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. The seed now has been cast. May it bear fruit for your glory. Lord, bless it. Protect it. Preserve it. As we assess and think about where we are in our growth, God, give us steps to take that we might continue to grow that we might become all that you have called us to be as disciples of Jesus. We love you. We're committed to you. We want to follow you. Lord, lead us. You're the good shepherd. In the name of Jesus, amen. God bless you guys. Have a great day.